All right, I hope you have a Bible or access to one on your phone this morning. We're going to be again in Haggai chapter 2 today. Um, Haggai is an interesting, interesting book. You probably haven't read it lately. Uh, I was reminiscing with someone this morning. I'm not even sure we've ever heard sermons preached on Haggai in our time as Christians. And so this is just a cool place for us to be in the scripture. I want you to imagine yourself driving at 55 miles an hour, okay? Now, that's hard for some of you. Some of you are like, 55 is my starting point, okay? I'm going up from there. So, but just imagine 55 miles an hour, and then somebody texts you. Like, you hear the little ding on your phone, or it comes through on your screen in front of you. Did you know that the time it takes for you to look at that text message and read it has the same effect as if you drove the length of a football field with your eyes closed. Crazy, right? It's like a little bit scary. This is what was happening in Haggai. We call that distracted driving. And you know distracted driving has disastrous consequences. Well, this is the story of Haggai. That the people who had been removed from the promised land... God used the Babylonians, by the way, to conquer his people and ransack Jerusalem and beyond and pull the people out of the promised land and take them to Babylon. Uh, Then, you know, ultimately God would bring them back from this time of discipline. It was called exile, but God brought them back in his mercy and his grace. He brought them back to the promised land and he gave them the task of rebuilding the temple. This is where Haggai sort of starts this task of rebuilding the temple because what had happened is they came back and they were all excited. They loved that God had brought them back and they built the foundation of the temple really quickly. But then let's just say that they got distracted at the speed of life. Life just happened, okay? They got the temple foundation laid and then it was like business needed to be attended to, families needed to be attended to, homes needed to be attended to, and they just got distracted. Before they knew it, Not just the length of a football field had gone by, but 16 full years had gone by where they were completely distracted from the work of God. The foundation that they had built originally was already decaying. It wasn't good. It was as if they were saying to God, we don't care if you're homeless among us. We're not going to do anything about it. Enter Haggai. Haggai, the prophet with a warning from God about the disastrous consequences of what we'll call distracted living or disordered priorities, to which the people responded uniquely. This is why Haggai is such a cool book. It's one of the only times in the Old Testament that we see the people of God responding in repentance. When God speaks to them with a warning, they respond in repentance. This is a great, great uh, story of encouragement. But then we find in chapter 2 where their encouragement is sort of waning. Uh, their, their newfound, you know, determination to obey God isn't leading to what they thought would happen. Things aren't happening as quickly as they thought. They're, in fact, getting a little bit discouraged, maybe even a little disappointed. And this is the big idea that we're going to talk about today in chapter 2. For the first nine verses of chapter 2, this question of what do you do when you have repented of disordered priorities and you've really done what you thought was right to put your priorities in the right place but then life continues to happen and maybe things spiritually aren't taking root as quickly as you wanted or maybe you're still facing some discouragement maybe there's some external forces that are still kind of against you and you're disappointed with how things are going what do you do at that point 
Well, today we're going to see how God speaks into this moment to encourage his people in the middle of this problem with two huge promises. So I want to start by reading the first three verses and start with the problem that the people were facing in the present time in Haggai chapter 2. So you've got the backstory now. Let's see how God responds. He says, On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and to the remnant of the people. And here's what God says through Haggai. Who is left among you who saw this house, the temple, in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? And I just want to pause there. This moment where God is speaking into these people's lives and they're experiencing discouragement and disappointment as they look at the temple foundation, which really not much had happened yet. The work had started a little, but they really weren't able to get it done. And even what they had been able to get done, when compared to what had happened in the past, it looked like nothing. Like they felt like failures. They felt small. They felt insignificant. They felt like they just really weren't doing enough, okay? And so how does God speak into this? Well, before we get into that part where he says, hey, doesn't this look like nothing to you now? Let's talk about verse 1 and the timing of this message. I don't know if you've noticed as we've studied Haggai the last couple weeks, but Haggai's pretty diligent through this short book uh, to be detailed about the timing of his messages. Now, the first chapter occurred on the first day of the sixth month, which was, if you study this, the end of harvest season. But you might remember from chapter 1 that the harvest wasn't anything to write home about that year. Because they had disobeyed God, because their priorities were out of whack, it actually says in chapter 1, God speaks to them and says, I ruined your crops. Right? I mean, th this harvest season was really nothing to write home about. And so it was the perfect moment for God to speak into their lives so that they would see with clarity how their disordered priorities were, were practically impacting their lives. And that moved them to repentance. And they started the work, the end of chapter 1 tells us, at the end of that month. Chapter 2 says in verse 1 that it occurs at the end of the seventh month. So almost two months has gone by. And the people were discouraged, right? I mean, they're looking at this foundation when not much has happened. And uh, it says that uh, it was the 21st day of the seventh month. Now, this is intentional, and there's a few reasons why. Let me just start by talking about why, uh, what was happening during the seventh month in Jewish life. It was called the Feast of Tabernacles. And a lot of Haggai points back to the Exodus story. We'll see that multiple times this morning. But uh, even a thousand years afterwards, uh, they're still celebrating this Feast of Tabernacles, which was a time in their calendar where the people would actually go camp in their backyards, like in a tent, and so that they would remind themselves of the time that God led them out of slavery from Egypt across the Red Sea. Remember Pharaoh and his army drowned in the sea? And then they followed God through the wilderness, which... It was a longer journey than maybe they originally intended, but ultimately into the promised land. But on the way, they lived in tents. Even God's dwelling among the, pe among, among the people was a tent. 
They called it a tabernacle. It was like the first version of the temple, but it was mobile. They would take it down and set it up and move it with them and, and set it up again. I mean, this is how they lived. And so the feast, the festival of tabernacles was this time where they were supposed to be living in tents. Now, here's why this matters. You remember back in chapter 1, what we have is celebrating this feast or festival of tabernacles, living in tents to remind themselves of the exodus and the wilderness journey when God rescued them from Egypt. But when God rescued them from Babylon, what did they do? They immediately built luxurious homes while the temple of the Lord lay in ruins. And so this was not just a moment of clarity, it was like a moment of conviction where what they literally were experiencing in their midst during this festival uh, was, was symbolic of what God was trying to teach them in their hearts. That why would they leave God's temple in ruins yet build for themselves houses when they serve a God who leads them out of slavery and into a life following provision, promise? This is where the people were. So that's kind of the first part. The, the second part is that there was no major work allowed during this festival. So two months into this project and not much is happening, well, that's not all their fault. Because God had said, hey, during this festival, you know, it's like a Sabbath of sorts. You're not supposed to work during this time. And so they didn't. But that didn't really help their cause. In fact, it kind of amplified their discouragement because they wanted to, to be obeying. It's just like things weren't really working out. The timing was sort of off. And so the timing was off there. They, they couldn't really get much done. Uh, but then the next part about this uh, was that it was sort of a national holiday. Uh, not like we have President's Day or something like that, but it was, uh, it, was, it was just a time of remembrance for the nation of Israel. They would have uh, been remembering how 400 years or so before this moment, at this very time of the year on the calendar, Solomon had built this amazing temple, like a, like a like a wonder of the world type temple and it had been opened and dedicated and commissioned to the Lord at this time of year and so it was sort of like this annual remembrance for hundreds of years generation after generation oh remember Solomon's temple and even to the point where he says some of you saw this house in its former glory in verse 2 referring back to the time of Solomon's temple. Because not too long before the time of the Babylonian exile, Solomon's temple still was there. And it wasn't just the glory of Solomon's temple, like the beauty and the ornate materials and, and all the, how the, the fabrics were woven together. And all. It wasn't just the exterior beauty of the temple. It was also that the glory of the Lord was present in the temple. That there was a manifest presence of God in Solomon's temple. God filled the temple, the Bible says, with his glory like a cloud. That it was like thick in the room. God lit the sacrificial altar in Solomon's temple with fire from heaven. Can you imagine? Maybe some of you have had an experience like that with God in the past where he just was so real to you. But that hasn't happened in a long time. Maybe you remember like, when you were a kid and you were closer to God than maybe you feel now as an adult. Maybe you remember a time when you were part of church and sort of like everything about church uh, was also uh, like it met, met your preferences and uh, you, know, just, you liked coming because your preferences were commonplace and now everything's just different. 
Like it's not the way it used to be. And we call those the glory days, right? Anybody ever heard that phrase, the glory days? Back when things were easier, back when things were simpler, back when things maybe even in your mind were just better than they are now. Maybe it was when there was more people in the room. Maybe it was when it was, I don't know what it was, the music was different. Or maybe it was when uh, you just felt closer to God. The glory days. And we long for the glory days. You know, what would, how do we get back there is the question we're often asking. So if you've longed for that, if you felt that, then you know just a glimpse of what the people were feeling in the book of Haggai. They were just discouraged. They were just a little discontent. They were kind of disappointed at how things were working out. They were trying to do the right thing, but it just wasn't happening like they thought it was going to happen. So chapter 1 is a call to repentance, which they did. Chapter 2 is a call to renewed hope. And this is how God speaks into their situation. I love what God says to the people through the prophet Zechariah, which if you just flip in your Bible over one book, you find Zechariah. He was a contemporary of Haggai. They kind of spoke into the same situation at the same time. This is what God says uh, through Zechariah in chapter 4, verse 10. There's a familiar name here. He says, Zerubbabel's hands have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will complete it. Do not despise the day of small beginnings. Do not despise the day of small beginnings. And you can picture them standing there at this temple foundation that's decaying, wanting to do the right thing, but just feeling like nothing was working out. And even if they had a memory or a tradition passed down to them about the glory of Solomon's temple, now they're looking at this and going, well, man, we're just not measuring up. I mean, what I'm doing must not be good enough. It certainly doesn't match what used to be. And they're feeling like failures. They are feeling small and insignificant. But the truth of this problem is that God meets them where they are, not where they thought they should be. Wow, can you think about this in your own life? When you feel like spiritually distant from God, when you're coming from a place of maybe a prodigal season in your life, we've walked away from God, but you're coming back there's a sense of guilt and shame that makes you think you should be farther along. But the truth is God meets you where you are, not where you think you should be. So in discouragement, in disappointment, in times of small beginnings or maybe even new beginnings or re-beginnings in your faith, God meets you where you are. Maybe it's a time when you feel like you're starting over spiritually. God meets you where you are. Maybe it's a time where you feel like your spiritual life has stalled out. God meets you where you are. And he reminds you of his promises. Most namely, the promise that the glory days aren't somewhere in the past. The glory days are still to come. But before we get into the future, I do want to show you how he promises from the past. God's promise from the past. So we kind of understand the problem now. Let's look at verse 4. Coming out of this you know, realization that the foundation still looks like nothing, they still feel discouraged or disappointed, this is what God says. He says, even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work. 
for I'm with you, the declaration of the Lord of armies. This is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit is present among you. Don't be afraid. So three commands we saw here. One of them was repeated three times. First to Zerubbabel, the governor. Then second to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And then third, just to all the people in general. So we know God's speaking to his people. And he says, be strong, be strong, be strong. And then he says, work, like with an exclamation point. And then finally he says, don't be afraid. Now these are commands that you feel like, okay, God, God's going to speak into a command into my life. And it's going to move me forward. But what's cool about these commands is it reinforces the promise God had made to his people in the past. And you kind of have to understand the history of it. Uh, 500 years before Haggai, this was the exact encouragement, exactly, that King David gave to Solomon before that beautiful Solomon's temple was built. Look with me in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 20. I'll have it on the screen for you. It says, Then David said to his son Solomon, Be strong and courageous and do the work. Don't be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He won't leave you or abandon you until the work for the service of the Lord's house is finished. That's 500 years before. God's promise and instruction and command was the same. This is encouraging the hearts of the people in this moment of discouragement. God's meeting them where they are. He's speaking into them. He's saying, I've never left. Even when you broke covenant, I didn't break covenant with you. And this language goes even further back, 500 years before Solomon. There was a, the time of the Exodus. And right after this wilderness journey, as they're moving into the promised land, uh, God uses Moses to speak into Joshua, son of Nun's life. This is a different Joshua, a much, much older Joshua, a thousand years before the Joshua in Haggai. But he speaks into Joshua, Joshua's life at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, and he says several times, be strong and courageous. Then at the beginning of the book of Joshua, which tells the history of the people of God entering the promised land for the first time, God says to Joshua, be strong and courageous, for I'm with you. He's saying, you got to be battle ready. As I lead you into the promised land, be strong. Be ready to do whatever because I am with you. And so when you face discouragement, which you will, when you face disappointment, which you will face discouragement and disappointment, when God is the priority of your life, when you do, the sustaining promise of God has always been his presence. It's a sustaining promise. His presence will get you through. His presence will give you the strength you need. His presence will help you overcome fear. His presence will give meaning to the work that you do as well. This is what verse 4 says, work, for I am with you. Now, this idea of work uh, in our New Testament kind of context uh, can be a little tricky with people. Sometimes Christians bow up at this idea of work and they go, yeah, not work, grace, Remember, God has grace for us. And yes, God has grace for us. Like we wouldn't be here without God's grace. And I love what Dallas Willard says about this. He says that grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed uh, to earning. I mean, if God's going to give us grace, we, we can't earn his grace. But we can work from his grace. We don't work for God's blessing, but we can work from God's blessing. We don't work for God's presence, but we can work from God's presence. And so this is the sustaining promise that leads us. 
And it leads us into work. God didn't command them to work for his blessing, but from his blessing. In fact, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 13, you see this promise. As they stand there at the temple foundation, before any timber had been brought from the hills, before anything else had happened, before any nails had been driven, God says in verse 13 of chapter 1, I am with you. Because of their repentance. Because they got the priority of God first right in their life, God says, I am with you. Which just reinforces the truth that we've already established that God meets you where you are, not where you think you should be. This is what he's doing. And it's a good reminder for you as a believer in Jesus that God's presence is with you even if you don't feel it. But if you do feel distant from God, which happens to us, the, the start of feeling closer is to work in obedience for him. To obediently work at his work. To do what he wants you to do. And that'll lead you to feeling more close to God. You've never lost his presence. You've never been out of covenant with God. It's just like a marriage. From the moment you say, I do, in front of witnesses, in front of a pastor, you say, I do to your spouse and until death do us part and all these things, you're in that covenant relationship. But you cannot rely on I do to carry you through to the end, can you? You gotta put in some effort if you wanna be close to your spouse. You gotta plan date nights. You gotta get babysitters. You gotta spend time together. You gotta go on walks. You gotta have difficult conversations. You gotta work through conflict. I mean, all these things, they, they strengthen and sweeten the covenant, right? So this is the same with God. We're in a covenant relationship with God. He, even when we break covenant, he doesn't. He keeps it together. And we come to him in repentance. He meets us where we are, not where we should be. And he invites us into this life of obedience with him so that we can deepen our relationship with him. This is what's happening here in Haggai. Uh, this week I heard Chelsea, our children's minister, say something that I thought was brilliant. She said, you'll never drift into a deeper relationship with God, but you can steer into it. Isn't that cool? You'll never drift into a deeper relationship with God, but you can steer into it. And I started thinking about how like this, this curve that the people were approaching in Haggai was a curve that they didn't see coming. Like they were disappointed. They were kind of feeling a little dejected. They were discouraged. But do you know how to keep traction when you go through a curve in your driving? You accelerate through the curve. But a lot of Christians face unexpected situations and circumstances, things that discourage them, things that maybe disappoint them. They don't feel like they're where they should be. And then in their minds, they go, I'm just going to stop. I'm not willing to see what's on the other side. of that. I'm just going to stop. I'm just going to back away. I'm going to distance myself from God. But I think in reality, what we see is that obedience to God is the accelerator that pushes us through the curve of discouragement and discontent and disappointment to where God wants us to be. Just keep being obedient and you'll deepen your relationship with God. This is the call. So is God just a taskmaster who wants us to try harder? Man, there are churches out there talking about this. There are preachers preaching this gospel. That God's disappointed with you. Just try harder. Do you know why you don't feel close to God? It's because you're not doing enough quiet times. It's because you're not praying enough. Because you're not doing this, you're not doing that, you're not doing this. Just try harder. 
does that ever lead to fulfillment? No. I mean, I can tell you from personal experience, that actually leads to discouragement and disappointment. It leads to guilt and shame. But God is not relating to us in that way. God doesn't require us to work for his blessing. He asks us to work from his blessing. Not for his presence, from his presence. And so we're already close to God, but we get to dig into that in how we relate to him through obedience. You know, verse 5 causes the people's minds as if they weren't there already to go back a thousand years to Egypt. It's like mentally in the people's minds as they read verse 5 and he says in verse 5, this is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt. It's like the people are going back in their history and they're imagining themselves going back across the Negev, right? Back through the wilderness and then across the Red Sea and then back into Egypt and back into slavery under Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the kind of leader that required more of them without giving anything to them. In fact, while he took away from them. And a lot of people think that's how God works. That he just wants you to do more. He doesn't ever give you anything. But in reality, that's Pharaoh. Pharaoh kept upping the quota of bricks while decreasing the amount of resources that he would give the people and the amount of time that he expected to do it in. Pharaoh had this exhausting and and never-ending burden because he was a cruel and ambivalent master. But then God rescued them from that, and God proved himself to be a loving and kind and present master whose burden isn't exhausting and never-ending, but whose burden is light. Jesus actually picked up on this, and in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and 29, Jesus reinforces this. This is who God is. The call of Jesus was in here, come to me, he says. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. I'll give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I'm lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we've got this contrast between an unkind, ambivalent, never-ending burden of a master in Pharaoh. And God is saying, I rescued you from that. And my presence gives you strength. In your discouragement, my presence is going to give meaning to your work. And even in your disappointment, my presence is going to meet you where you are, not where you think you should be. God's presence, the Holy Spirit. He, he's a constant source of strength for us as believers. So what is our act of faith? Practically speaking, how do we live a life of faith when we face discouragement or disappointment, when we feel small, when we feel insignificant, when we feel like we're just not quite as far along as we should be? Here it is. Our act of faith in the midst of disappointment and discouragement is to reject the temptation for those feelings to shape our view of God. Sometimes disappointment and discouragement lead to guilt and shame and things like that. And, we, and then we put those feelings on God. We shape our view of God based on how we feel. 
That's creating God in our image, by the way, but instead God created us in his image. So the proper response of faith is we reject that temptation and we remind ourselves of the true character of God, the promises that God always keeps, and we let that shape our feelings. That's how we fight rejection. That's how we fight disappointment. That's how we fight discouragement. And then a transformed heart will transform our hands and set us to the work of God by which we partner with God to build on his promise of the past and build toward his promise of the future. So what is the promise for the future? Well, this is the turn God makes as he speaks through Haggai in verse 6. He says, For the Lord of armies says this, Once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth the sea and the dry land. I'll shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of armies. The silver and gold belong to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says the Lord of armies. I'll provide peace in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. So we see how the people felt like they were in a place of dejection, discouragement, disappointment. That they didn't have what it took. And God stepped in and said, I will provide what it takes. But this is where we get to the meat of prophecy also. And I want you to just remind you, we said last week that a prophet isn't a fortune teller. A prophet is a truth teller. A prophet is someone who relays the word of God directly to the people, okay? This is the Old Testament role of the prophet. And if, uh, he's speaking the words of God, which, by the way, by my count, is nine times in nine verses. This is reinforced, reinforced right here in chapter 2 that Haggai is speaking the words of God. If that's what's happening, then he is revealing eternal truths about God. And if a prophet reveals eternal truths about God, that means they're true not just for then, but they're true for now, and they're true for the future, and they're true from before then. Okay, so you can think of prophecy and reading prophecy uh, kind of like looking at a mountain range. I don't know if you've ever uh, been in like Kansas where it's super flat, and then you've driven west toward Colorado, and once you get it through the eastern part of Colorado, you can start to see the Rocky Mountains out in front of you. You ever had that experience? So, or some other experience like it, it looks two-dimensional. Like when you see off in the distance the Rocky Mountains, you just see all these peaks lined up next to each other. But you know it's not two-dimensional, right? You know that if once you get to that first peak and you traverse that first peak, there's going to be a valley behind it. And you're still going west. And then you're going to hit another mountain. You're going to go over that mountain. There's going to be another valley. And then you're going to go over that mountain. There's going to be another valley, etc. And so all of a sudden you understand that it's not two-dimensional, but there is depth And this is the way we read prophecy in the Old Testament, that there's depth of meaning. The first meaning is probably the one you come to first, which is the immediate fulfillment of prophecy. Well, in this story, God is fulfilling his promise to shake the nations, to to empty the coffers of the nations so that his temple could be built. It's an incredible story. If you flip back in your Old Testament to the book of Ezra, uh, Ezra tells this story. In fact, in Ezra chapter 6, Uh, King Darius of Persia, who's the same king that chapter 1, verse 1 of Haggai refers to, signs a decree. 
He had already sent the people back uh, to the promised land to rebuild the temple. And then he goes one step further and signs a decree and says that the royal, uh, the royal revenue from taxes will actually be applied to meet the daily financial needs for the people to rebuild the temple and to worship there. He's even going to provide the sacrifices and the financial means that are necessary for the sacrifices that the temple will host. I mean, this is incredible news. This immediate fulfillment of this prophecy. And you know this has to be God. Because I don't hear of any other governments dipping into tax dollars to help out God's people. Right? So this is God at work immediately fulfilling his promise. But then you go over that mountain and you find another mountain of meaning. Another peak of meaning. This is what I want to call a Christological fulfillment. Now that's a big word, but I want you to know it. Because it essentially just means it's something that points to Jesus Christ. Christological, right? Something that points to Jesus Christ. And every Old Testament prophecy has a Christological application. Something that points to Jesus. Now, if you go into your New Testament, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, Jesus says... Something greater than the temple is here. Wow. And Haggai chapter 2 verse 7 says, I will fill this house with glory. And so the moment Jesus walked into the temple for the first time, God fulfilled that prophecy. It points to Jesus. Something greater than, Jesus is the greater temple, right? Jesus is where the ultimate sacrifice for sin would be made. And through him, people would find access to God. But then we keep driving, we keep going west, we find another peak. Another peak of meaning is found even later in the New Testament as Jesus forms the church, right? Jesus ascends to heaven. He's already given authority to Peter to sort of be the, the, the first stone in this building of his church, the leader of this movement. And uh, in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter calls the people of the church living stones, he says, a spiritual house being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So now the temple is not a building. The temple is now Jesus, the greater temple, now being lived out through the church of Jesus. And so you see this prophecy being fulfilled layer upon layer, but it doesn't stop there. It goes even farther, as verse 9 suggests. Verse 9 says, the final glory of this house will be even greater than the first. So not even Solomon's temple in all of its glory with the manifest presence of God will compare to the final glory that God will bring to this temple. And he's pointing to the end of time. Somewhere even in the future of our lives, maybe today, when God judges all things, restores all things, and redeems all things. And he creates the new heaven and the new earth. This incredible experience where we learn to live with God and we experience him as God originally intended. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first. Well, let's look at Revelation chapter 21. I want you to see this. This is the second to last chapter of your Bible. The vision that God gives John, the apostle of Jesus, about what the future will hold when the final restoration of all things happens. John says in Revelation 21, I did not see a temple in it. 
Because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, or Jesus, are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it. Remember, he's going to fill it with his glory. And its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Sound familiar? Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever into it, enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. What a picture. A final mountain peak. A final horizon. When the temple is no longer needed to be a physical thing because God fulfills its purpose in his own being. His glory is revealed in its fullness at that day. And we experience it with him. In fact, the penultimate promise from Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, is in the last part of verse 9. And this is where I'll close, but he says in the end of verse 9, I will provide peace in this place. This is a summary promise for these nine verses. And the word peace here in the Hebrew may be familiar to you. It's the word shalom. Maybe you've heard someone say that to somebody else. Shalom. It goes beyond uh, peace as the absence of war, although the people needed that. Remember, they'd come back into the promised land, and while they were in exile in Babylon, people, other people came into their land, and then when they came back from Babylon, all of a sudden those people were like, well, we're here now, finders keepers, right? So we don't really think you should be here. And then some conflict ensued. So peace, shalom, goes beyond the avoidance of that conflict, and it goes into something much, much deeper. Instead, shalom describes complete wellness. It describes human flourishing, the way inside and out that God designed us to experience life with him here on earth. It was the kind of peace that Adam and Eve had with God. It was the kind of peace before sin came into the world. It was the, it's the kind of peace that we will experience when God restores and redeems all things. This is the promise of shalom, where we don't need a temple structure to know God's peace because all of this promise of peace is fulfilled in the climax of history in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is referred to in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, as our peace. It says, Christ, who is our peace. This peace available because of God's grace, fulfilled in Jesus, is what leads us to the presence of God. You remember when Jesus gave his last breath on the cross, what happened at the temple, this very temple that they were building? The curtain that separated the Holy of Holies where God's presence resided from the regular people, that curtain was ripped into from top to bottom because God did it. God providing peace. God giving access to himself through Jesus. So we know his promise of the past We've been invited into participating with him into his promise for the future. This new heaven and new earth, this beautiful existence with God for eternity that's full of adventure and fun and joy and fulfillment. And it all hinges on Jesus. So are you discontent? Are you discouraged? 
Do you feel like your spiritual life just isn't gaining traction? Do you not have assurance of eternity with God? The answer is Jesus. This is what Colossians chapter 1 says about Jesus. It says, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him, to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It's Jesus. And that's where I want us to end today. And we'll pick up in verse 10 next week. But I want to invite us into a moment of response. Haley and the worship team are going to come. And I just want to set this up because our study of Haggai has been really impactful. In fact, if you go back even further in our study of Haggai, we've studied the book of Colossians for 20 weeks. And the main point of Colossians, I've just read that verse, the main point of Colossians is to keep the main thing the main thing. That God is supposed to be the priority, that Jesus is above all. He is the main thing. He's the first thing in our lives. And we saw that over and over again through Colossians, and then now we get to Haggai, and we see the first chapter of Haggai where God speaks to the people and goes, your priorities are out of whack. And you got to get that right because it's impacting your life. There's a better picture, and it comes through repentance and obedience. There's a better way to live, a better future, if you'll make God the priority of your life.